Hello, and welcome to the Future Christian Podcast, your source for insights and ideas into what it means to live as a follower of Jesus in the 21st century. At the Future Christian Podcast, we talk to pastors, authors, and other faith leaders for helpful advice and practical wisdom to help you and your community of faith walk boldly into the future. Here's your host, Lauren Richmond Jr. Welcome to the Future Christian Podcast. My name is Lauren Richmond Jr. and I'm pleased to be joined today by Nicholas Warnes. Nick is the founder and executive director of Cyclical Inc. He has a Master of Divinity from Fuller Theological Seminary with an emphasis in worship, theology, and art. He enjoys the regular pattern and rhythm of being both the executive director of Cyclical Inc. and director of Cyclical LA, a ministry of the San Fernando Presbytery in Los Angeles. Nick is also a recognized speaker on church planning, coach for new worshiping communities with the Presbyterian Church USA, and is the chair of the board of the church planting program at Fuller Theological Seminary, where he is also an adjunct professor in the church planting certificate. Nick has contributed to several books and is anticipating the release of his 2021 book, Starting Well, The First Four Seasons of a New Church. Nick lives with his wife, Whitney, and son, Lee, in Los Angeles, California. Welcome to the show, Nick. What else would you like our listeners to know about you? Hey, Lauren. Thanks for including me. I appreciate it. Yeah, my name is Nick. Uh, I live in Los Angeles, California. I'm married to Whitney. We have a three-year-old tornado in our house. (laughs) His name is Lee. Uh, that's actually my second vocation i figured out lauren is cleaning up after my kid oh man so yeah once the six thousand emails are done just walk around and clean stuff up off the floor it's fantastic i'm fresh off of vacation i'm feeling good and, and ready to chat my brain's a little less fuzzy than it was before the vacation sorry to our cyclical podcast listeners for those last couple episodes a little fuzzy brain in there <laughs> And yeah, I'm always happy to talk about the future of the church. I think it's a really important conversation, especially as we move through and out of COVID. And uh, yeah, couldn't be uh, more humbled than to be with you here today. Awesome. Thanks for being here. Uh, talk a little bit about your journey of faith, kind of what coming to faith looks like, looked like and then what it looks like today. I grew up in a nominally Christian family in Grand Rapids, Michigan, uh, where there's a whole bunch of... Um, Dutch folks who would identify as Christian there. I always say I grew up in the first kind of post-Christian generation in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, we hung out with probably 20 families, 25 families through uh, my time in you know middle school, high school, beyond. And very few, if any, would have identified as Christian that time. Uh, I, I heard about Jesus at a Young Life camp and through some relationships that I had with Young Life leaders. Appreciated that very much. Uh, and that was really key um, to um, my, my faith journey. Uh, and then some other key moments. I saw you've had uh, Brian McLaren on this podcast. Um, his, his book, A New Kind of Christian, really helped me through um, my expertise as a 20-year-old in the faith. So I knew everything when I was 20. Um, <laughs> and then uh, his, his book, A New Kind of Christian, that series, Generous Orthodoxy, helped me through that. And then um, Fuller Seminary was key. Uh, I became a member at a church for the first time while I was at Fuller Seminary. My time at Glendale Presbyterian Church was really important to my, my faith formation. 
Um, and then obviously uh, getting the journey with my wife. We got married. We were pretty young. Whitney was 21. I was 23. Hmm. Yeah. So she, we kind of grew up together in a lot of ways and uh, learning about faith um, with her has been a really important part of my life. Yeah. That's interesting. I was, I was very young also when my wife and I got married, I was 21, almost 22. My wife was 20. So it's nice. kind of like, wow. I don't necessarily recommend it uh, for us. <laughs> right. Do you all like the same foods as well? Because we now like the same foods we didn't used to because we just grew up on our palates together. Oh, that's interesting. That's such a good question. I mean, when I was a kid, my father doesn't like any kind of flavor, to be frank. God, I'll pray for him. Yeah. <laughs> so to me, I still very much am a plain, like, plus we were kind of low income. So like going out to McDonald's was like, a big yes. deal for us. Yes. So right. I eat us like too. way too much McDonald's because I can today. Right. <laughs> but yes. this interview is about you, not me. <laughs> you don't want to talk about a sausage McMuffin for an hour? It sounds really fun. That's what I had for breakfast with egg. So. <laughs> nice. I won't tell. Oh, you just told everyone on your public podcast. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Um, what spiritual practices have you developed uh, that have been meaningful for you? You might recommend others. That's a good question. Do you ask this of everyone, this question? Yes. Nice. Good for you. Very thoughtful. Very thoughtful. Um, you know, being a Young Life kid, we were taught kind of the cliches early on, like read the Bible and journal and have quiet time. Um, one of those three uh, have lasted and connected with me, <laughs> I would say, um, and have been uh, grateful uh, to learn about other uh, disciplines uh, to engage in. So, yeah, I, I wake up early. I go to bed early, and I wake up early, and I read in the morning. Um, so, um, books and Bible are a big part of my morning. I appreciate that. And then uh, lots of yoga that follows right after. So the best morning is like my kid wakes up at seven. I wake up at five, do books, Bible, a little workout yoga, and then start plowing into emails. And then my kid wakes up and go from there. Um, so yeah, those morning um, disciplines are important. Uh, I do these things um, that have become an important rhythm in the lives of a bunch of church planters that I work with called Work Hard, Play Hard Retreats. Oh, I want to hear about so that. We go up into the woods and uh, we all have projects. Uh, there, a lot of them are authors and a lot of them are church planters. And we just uh, work really hard until five o'clock. And the rule is if anyone wants to collaborate with you, you have to collaborate with them in the moment. Hmm. So you get all sorts of collaboration partners, and then we end at 5 o'clock and uh, pour the wine, get the steak out, uh, do that kind of thing. So that's been an important rhythm in my life. Um, and then uh, the, the, the practice of, um, of community is, is really important, too. So in COVID, uh, I'm a flaming extrovert. And uh, that was, was pretty painful. A lot of my friends who are introverts had mastered the art of social distancing way previous to, to COVID. I'm the opposite of that. So once I figured out I could have a little pod in our backyard, uh, that, that was really helpful for me. So I have two friends in particular that uh, I love um, staying up late into the evening with and talking about life and accountability. Uh, and it may or may not include um, some whiskey as well as we do that together. Yeah. Well, first of all, when is your next work hard, play hard retreat? Because I need to be a part of that. Well, we're actually expanding it out. This is great. Uh, my colleagues will be so proud of me. Uh, we're taking this idea and we're expanding it out to Joshua Tree in November. 
Uh, so we, we're planning the next cyclical conference, and we're like, no one wants to go to a conference right now. I don't want to go to a conference, especially if it's going to be online. Yeah. Last thing ever I want to do. So we, we asked the staff asked each other, what would we do? <laughs> we thought, well, what if we went to the desert and there was a pool and we got like a, a really enormous house and basically very minimal, you know, rah-rah kind of stuff, maybe like a morning reflection and an evening reflection and just have the day to take a hike, to work, to jump in the pool and to do collaboration and see what the spirit of God does as these people come together. And we're doing it. Can't wait. So November is the answer to that. I love it. Well, we have so much to talk about here. So let's let's jump in. Nick is the executive director of Cyclical Inc. Why don't you tell kind of about what Cyclical is and does and, and maybe start with how it came to be. Um, Cyclical uh, Incorporated uh, grew out of Cyclical LA, which grew out of a church that I started called Northland Village Church. So uh, a group of us, not myself, um, but a group of us started Northland Village Church. And in the first five years, we started like 15 other churches, partnered along the way there. And then uh, uh, my uh, middle judicatory boss. I know it's a real exciting term. <laughs> um, um, uh, my, uh, the, the executive of the presbytery, right? The middle governing body of the Presbyterian church, um, said, Hey Nick, would you consider going halftime at Northam village church to frame out what God's doing with all these new churches? I said, yes. And that turned into cyclical LA, um, which was the first cyclical ecosystem. And then from there, my coaches and mentors said, Hey, there's going to be other denominations that are interested in partnering with you on these frameworks and sure enough they were right so people started calling from all over the world and we started cyclical incorporated and early on it was all about helping people start gardens um, for starting new churches mostly middle governing bodies Hmm. some upper governing bodies so you know we partnered with a uh, presbyterian church in canada Uh, we partnered with a number of different um, presbyteries as well in the presbyterian church usa and we say to them hey if you want to start a church plant feel free that's great you're ahead of most middle governing bodies you even want to start one we're not the people that are going to help you start one we want to create the whole garden yeah a whole set of infrastructure that will help you produce multiple churches over time so that was a good run we did that for three or four years and we continue to do that a lot uh, we're just we're really grateful we're starting right now in winnipeg and portland and hopefully dallas in the next uh, couple months cool and there's like 17 other ones uh, around the world as well and then um, big shift in the last year um we we moved from uh, just starting church starting ecosystems uh, all the way to focusing on a, a broader sense of faithful innovation so our mission statement was to create and sustain ecosystems for starting new churches which we loved and was very accurate and also potentially the least inspiring sentence in the history of humanity so we wanted something a little more existentially thrilling and we wanted to take all we've learned from starting hundreds of churches all over the world to the broader church so now we went to that Simon Sinek's Why, How, What, the, the Golden Three Circles. I don't know if you're familiar with that. A little bit. But we, we shifted from a mission statement to a why statement. And our why statement now is God's love for the world, inspiring faithful innovation through the church. So how will we do faithful innovation? Well, certainly we're going to keep starting church, starting ecosystems all over the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're also going to do faithful innovation through our publishing um, company that we started. Uh, we're starting a cyclical social enterprise as we speak, which is going to be a, a mutual disciple-making network for CEOs and executive directors. Love it. Um, starting cyclical succession, uh, which is all about um, 
helping churches at the end of their life cycle, how to, yeah. how to transition well, and then cyclical full circle, which is working with existing churches for the purposes of better engaging their neighbors through innovative practices. So those are all coming, and it's been quite a ride. Well, I love it all. I love it all. I want to just like ask you about all that stuff, but I know we don't have time for it. I'm, I'm, I want to particularly point out the word you used, infrastructure. Um, I say this as someone who is tried and failed. <laughs> I'm not afraid to to own that and and laugh about it uh, through part of the grieving process. To be frank, of of a new church, and one of the things that I most noticed, what really just, frankly, killed me in many ways was a lack of infrastructure. Sure. And I I recently had to read a book as as part of a business class I'm taking called The E Myth by Michael Gerber. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that or our listeners are. I'm not are. familiar, no. But it's all about kind of entrepreneurship, and, and his basic point is what, what kills the new business folks isn't isn't a want to or an inability to do the job. It's managing the complexities of the job. Um, so that's what I think that particularly stands out to me about y'all y'all's work at Cyclical is – uh, the building the infrastructure, I think, is so important to helping sure. people be successful. Yeah. Let's uh, let's talk a, a a little bit about some of your core values. So, sure. A couple that stood out to me right away. I want to hear more about are shrewdness and autonomy. So, uh, tackle those in whatever order you want to. Yes, we started those initial 15 churches when we started Cyclical LA, and they're super diverse, super diverse in how they function as church, super diverse in nationality, super diverse in ethnicity. And uh, we did find 12 common core values in all of them, though. So that's where we came up with those core covenant values. Mm -hmm. And one of them is shrewd risk-taking. And I don't know, I think I've written some stuff about why Luke 16 and the parable of the shrewd manager is the most important church starting text uh, in the world right now. Um, so yeah, I can't commend that text enough, especially for people who are coming out of um, more privileged denominational places. Yeah, yeah. So I know you have some history with the DOC. I have some history with the Presbyterian Church USA, mm-hmm. and uh, those Christendom privileges are waning. Yeah. And for those who never had those privileges, uh, please excuse those of us that did, and uh, and be ready to to. Um, to, to teach and, and, to, and, to, and to work with us. We have a long way to go on that. So, yeah, it comes out of Luke 16, Parable of the Shrewd Manager, uh, moving through and out of Christendom and the privileges of Christendom and uh, encouraging people to, to get their shrewd hats on. Give me, give me an example, uh, and maybe give our listeners an example of, you know, a story about shrewdness in church planting. Or, I mean, what... This, for the purposes of the podcast, I guess, leave it, stick to that context. Yeah, in a church planning context, um, I'll t- I mean, I'll share about one uh, that that uh, we prioritized that worked well for us. Yeah. So uh, Northland Village Church, uh, we started in Northeast LA, a super post-Christian part of Los Angeles, kind of gritty, grimy, blue collar, lots of art, lots of music um, here. And very few people interested in church. So we get uh, to our third location. We started in the womb of our parent church, at Glendale Presbyterian Church. Then we partnered with an elementary school and their auditorium. We were tired of setup and teardown for our events. <laughs> so we wanted a full-time space. We got a, we got a full-time space. Full-time space in Los Angeles for churches is impossible because you need to be zoned as a church. 
And what happens is all these churches that are zoned for churches, uh, the churches die and they're no longer churches. And so they're quick to get away the, from those zoning uh, restrictions for things that aren't churches. But if you're a church trying to get into a space that is not zoned for church, it's near impossible. So the way to do it would have been to get a, what's called a conditional use permit for a church to rent this industrial um, building that we really wanted. So uh, we didn't want to do the conditional use permit. So we said, okay, City of LA, we'll play your games with you. Uh, we'll start not nor- not just Northland Village Church, but we started the Northland Village Foundation. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Northland Village Foundation is a nonprofit that exists to give other nonprofits space for free. Yeah. So the Northland Village Foundation ended up renting the industrial building that we met at forever. And the church generously was uh, was given the space to use for free on Sundays. <laughs> And uh, and for all the events we had during the week, yeah. And Northland Village Church just generously gave uh, the Northland Village Foundation like four thousand dollars a month, uh, just to say thank you. So it just future it, it functioned out of mutual generosity, yeah. And uh, yeah, got around uh, the city's ridiculous permitting structures for churches. And as you know, convoluted or complicated or you know, that might sound even a bit. You know, folks might be like, oh, that's a bit slimy. I mean, beyond that, it's a good idea because I've I'm trying to tell this to every every pastor I know. I'm I'm literally helping my parents in their small independent Baptist church of like 15 people start a nonprofit for their food bank for their food pantry. Absolutely, because folks are less and less inclined to give money to a church, but they'll give money to a a nonprofit. And And if you've you know, if you've gone through all the, the hoops and legal stuff, like you're as legitimate as a nonprofit as any other nonprofit out there. And like your example of Northland Village, like, yeah, you know, if someone went and replicated that scenario somewhere else, like, yes, the church can be a tenant, but so can other like social good organizations. They can be tenants too. And you're like living out your mission in such a creative, clever way. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. And I think you're right on. Uh, non-prof- side nonprofits as grant capturing structures economically is great. And another thing uh, that uh, we're now moving toward is uh, Cyclical Incorporated is a nonprofit, will function as a nonprofit. You can start for profits and put them underneath the umbrella of nonprofits and have that money funnel up. Yeah. So that's next in our radar. That's like t- 2023 uh, coming. Um, from us. I mean, that gets into super technical IBID and, you know, income. What is it? What's the word I'm thinking? Not, it's not income before income taxes. It's um... You are about to go well beyond my pay grade here. You can ask our board, though. <laughs> <laughs> I forget what the technical term is, but it's uh, something about if there's income that's beyond the scope of your mission or something like that, you have to pay taxes on that. But again, yeah, like you said, like you can. this is kind of the whole social entrepreneurship model is you can open up a, a for-profit industry underneath your nonprofit the the revenues the the profits basically just need to be funneled back into the um the nonprofit nonprofit right we exactly. could spend another uh, we could spend another uh 30 minutes talking about social enterprise but that's for another podcast so well and i think what's important to note here too for people who especially those that are starting churches uh the quote-unquote chances the ratio of success of people getting to full financial sustainability through passing the plate yeah uh, that ratio is going down so we need to find other uh, other decentralized income sides to to sustain our churches. Nick, I literally because I'm such a church a new church nerd, I literally just did 
like an Excel spreadsheet on this I where it. I looked at like the the average adult giver is 17 bucks uh, a week. Okay. So if you take that if you take that out to a budget of 120k, which is a very minimal budget for a, a church, you need 136 adults. Yeah. And uh that's a lot. That's a lot of for for a for a new church for progressive leading church that's a lot. So yeah, like you said, like you've got to come up with other alternatives. Absolutely. 100%. Can't agree more. We have people selling kimchi. We have people who create experiences. Mm-hmm. We have people who have started gyms. I mean, there's so many examples of creative things people are doing. And I think being faithful is they're guided by the Holy Spirit in their various contexts. Let me ask you this then. Uh, we're getting a little off script, but thanks for thanks for going with me. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious, like, what would you say is kind of like the... Like, I wonder, in my context, I didn't have a building and I felt like so many things I wanted to try to do really necessitated a building. Yeah. What are some of the things you're seeing people do either without a building or if there's some other common element that folks are able to utilize as an asset? In in church starting context? Well, in like bringing in other revenue sources. Uh, so you want to talk about value added uh, income? Yeah. Uh, opportunities for people? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I kind of just flung from there a second ago with the kimchi sales, I think is important. Uh, there's this book called The Experience Economy. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. I'll commend it to it. It talks about products, goods, services, experiences, and how we're moving away from products, goods, and services and towards experiences. Yeah. And and the the, the church is a history filled and rich with creating experiences for people from, mm-hmm. you know, retreats to camps to classes, you know, whatever. Um, so yeah, a lot of people creating experiences, uh, a lot of people creating products. Hmm. Uh, we have a, a new worshiping community called Be Free that just graduated from Cyclical LA. Uh, they partner with Portland Gear and with Lululemon uh, to create experiences in their stores. And then they um, put Be Free logos on shirts and sell them as part of their income stream. Interesting. Um, so yeah, there's... There's literally, we have such a wide toolbox and a a huge toolbox and and we don't utilize that toolbox. So a lot of our work is helping to widen the plausibility structures for what's possible, help to to broaden imagination uh, so that people can get after, you know, the various income streams we need to keep our movements, I mean, not just sustainable too, but um, generative and replicable. Yeah. uh, So we can actually make a, make a difference in culture. So I'm, I'm Googling kimchi. It's a Korean cuisine absolutely yeah my wife and i make it you can check out my tiktok i show you how to make kimchi on my tiktok well as i said uh earlier i grew up pretty plain eating so it's like kimchi is about as far from plain eating as you can get (laughs) talk a little bit about i mean i think kind of all these trends that we're talking about were happening or coming in my perspective is that COVID has really just accelerated uh all this stuff so i mean talk around that or maybe talk about other ways that you think COVID has changed the nature of scope or scope of church planning. I mean, that question, my, my old professor at Fuller Seminary, uh, Vela Marty Karkanen in his thick Danish accent would always look at the class and say, what makes the church church? And it's a 2000 year old question. Like what makes the church church? 
and I think pre-COVID, everyone at least understood that the building wasn't the church. Uh, and by the way, if you use the word church for a church building, if you could please stop doing that and start calling church buildings church buildings and don't call them churches, that'll be very helpful. You're us. a little Church of Christ in that regard, aren't you? Am I? Nice. Church of Christ uh, will always be like Church of Christ meets here on their sign. <laughs> Fascinating. Um, so people before COVID, I think at least intellectually understood that the church is the humans, not the church buildings. Um, but in practice, they still function like the church building is the church. Right, right. Uh, certainly now COVID fully made people embody that the church is the humans and the, the, it's, the it's the network of relationships and the mutuality within that network uh, guided by the Holy Spirit, uh, right? toward um, hopefully creating spaces for transformation into the image of Jesus in their various contexts. So coming out of COVID, I can't wait to see what people are going to do. Uh, people are already, you know, uh, leveraging. I mean, I heard, I heard a pastor say uh, uh, that when they started their worship service uh, in person, in a church building, the pastor said, we're back, baby, we're back. Mm-hmm. I want to be like, uh, I don't know. If if back means that we get to gather for a centered worship experience for 90 minutes on a Sunday, uh, if you're content with that, like, cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, just know how that was working uh, around the Western world and how that was creating decline yeah. for about 50 years. Yeah. So yeah, I, I hope that people do broaden their imaginations and that they take risks and that they go for where the Spirit of God is prompting them. And certainly, uh, the Spirit of God will be working toward the centered Sunday kind of model. Um, but I hope that we can uh, utilize that toolbox that's in front of us for broadening that out a little bit. So I should have asked this earlier, uh, but it goes to the, the word you used about the value added or what was that word you used? Oh, a risk risk assessment? Risk assessment. So this is the thing, and I kind of alluded to it when I told you that I made like a spreadsheet out of like financial, like a financial prospectus here. The challenge that I'm seeing, and I wonder that this is common, I think, in all kinds, like the entire nonprofit world, to be frank, I think this happens far too often, is where whether it's a church planner, whether it's a social entrepreneur, whether it's a nonprofit leader, these leaders are asked to carry the majority of the cost uh, without concern, I think, enough for what they can truly can and should carry. So I I think that's my question is how do we make these things sustainable, not just financially, that's important, but also you know, emotionally, psychologically, physically. I mean, I've done like I've done the physical right. setup and teardown thing for churches. It's exhausting. It's exhausting. Right. right. Yeah. Uh, so, risk balance assessment starts with the concept that with that every decision is risky, and every lack of decision is risky as well. So, like for a like let's say we're cyclical is going to work with a potential denomination. Mm-hmm. Uh, our main competition with a denomination is that the denomination chooses to do nothing. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they can work with cyclical. Uh, they can try and create something on their own, which they understand won't be very good <laughs> or they can do nothing. Yeah. 
Um, and they need to understand that it is absolutely super risky to work with cyclical. Yeah. It is really risky to put time, energy, effort, blood, sweat, tears into up and coming church starters, uh, ecclesial innovators, however you want to say it. Mm-hmm. That is risky. And uh, there will be uh, there will be likely stories that do not end in success. Yep. And there will likely be stories that end in success. Yep. On the flip side of that, if they choose to do nothing, you want to talk about risky. Yeah. <laughs> that's risky. Doing nothing is risky. If we believe the church is alive, then everything that's alive starts, grows, shrinks, and eventually dies. Mm-hmm. If you choose to not start things, then you're just choosing death eventually. Yeah. And it might be, you know, five to fifty years from now. But we need to we need to start new things. So yeah, risk balance assessment. So then how do we for you I mean for the individual, right? For your listeners, for people who are, are, are making decisions, I, I cannot uh, recommend a book enough. It's gonna be a, a little edgy on the suggestion. Yeah. But there's this book called Thinking in Bets by Annie Duke. Annie Duke. Famous Annie poker Duke, player. Yep. She's the most famous um, poker player who identifies as female. I tried to get her on the cyclical podcast and she never responded. I was a little frustrated by that. <laughs> Just saying. I love um, that. I love going for that though. Gotta take risks. Gotta take risks. There we go. Yeah. And that was an easy risk, right? I mean, the risk is she says no. Like, okay, cool. Um, but she does talk about thinking in ratios uh, when you're doing risk assessment and she ties it to playing poker. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then she has she does great work too on outcome junkies and how outcome junkies are, are a problem. So if you're obsessed with the outcome, you're, you become an outcome junkie, and there's a great risk to being an outcome junkie. So yeah, I, w- I would commend that book a lot for people who want to measure risk. Hmm. So for, and she would she would say so for instance, I'll just uh, I'll try and do it really quickly. Yeah. Um, for people who want to take a risk, if if you're going to take a risk, and let's just say you have a hundred poker chips, mm-hmm. and uh, you you're going to bet a hundred, you're going to go all in on that, and the only return on that is like ten poker chips, that's a stupid risk. Don't do that risk. But if you can take a risk where you can spend ten poker chips and you could potentially get a hundred poker chips on that risk, that's a risk worth taking. Mm-hmm. The outcome junkie would come in and say, "Well, we bet ten and we didn't get the results we wanted." the better innovative leader would say, no, that was a good risk because we could have gotten 10X and we're going to get it again. We're going to try that again. And eventually we're going to land one of those and then we're going to scale from there. So you kind of intersect that with Eric Reese and the Lean Startup and you have a really good foundation for uh, for risk assessment and how to balance that in your life. You know, a couple things stand out to me from that is I think of a like Shark Tank, like Mark Cuban yeah. and those folks yeah. and like, Sometimes some some of the things they invest in, you're just like, that's stupid. <laughs> like that doesn't have a shot. <laughs> right. But to them, they're taking so many risks, and they're they're doing it in a way they're not like betting their fortune on um, a beer koozie was one I saw. Right. Like they're throwing a little bit of money at it, and if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And they'll say, hey, that was a good risk. And yeah. and I think uh, for one of the things that I told myself was like. I think it was like Thomas Edison or something who was like, you know, I've learned always not to create a light bulb or something like that. Like, <laughs> I think that's the way yeah. you have to be. Um, and conversely, like I, I, I said, like in my context, like my church, the, the established church down the street has a better chance of existing in 
five years than my church, but I probably have a better church of existing in 10 years than that yeah, church. Well I like that. Yeah, I like that. Now, unfortunately, neither is true, but that's another conversation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, this, is, this is great stuff here. What do you see, I guess, as, and I think this is kind of contextual to everything we've been talking about, you've been talking about. What do you see as the future of church planting? Hmm. Well, I'm biased, so that should be named. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the the next book I'm doing functions at the intersection of post-colonial, post-industrial, and highly pneumatological church planting. Mm. And I do think that's the future. So post-colonial, I think, speaks for itself, right? I mean, so many of uh, the church planting efforts that have existed in the United States of America have been steeped in colonialism. Yeah. Uh, any, anything from uh, Spanish colonialism and starting um, uh, all the all the churches. What are those? What are they called? The California the missions. Missions, yeah. Right, the missions. Um, so those are those industrial model church planting. Go in, convert people, not just to Jesus, but to Spanish culture. Yeah. And then build a building called a mission, and then um, sh- and then try and convert people, more people, to uh, that same culture. So yeah, anything from that um, to the colonial nature of launch large models of church planting today, yeah. where um, you're trying to convert people not just to Jesus, but to the larger culture of evangelicalism. So there's that. Uh, that one's self-explanatory. Post-industrial, I think, is really important. Uh, a lot of people will just follow equations when they try and start churches. Yeah, uh, they'll be gi- they'll be given an equation from an outside group. Yep. Do this. Do this. Do this. A plus B plus C, and you'll get D. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, those equations are working at lower and lower ratios. Yeah. As we move further and further away from Christendom, and I would say most importantly, those equations leave out something that I think is very important. That's the process of the Holy Spirit with the community of God's people. Yeah. So people will, instead of following the Holy Spirit, they'll follow the equation. Yeah. And with what we've been learning at Cyclical, it's actually important to follow the Holy Spirit over and against the equation. Heaven forbid. What a wild idea. So yeah, post that's post-industrial. Um, churches that are started on assembly lines based off of the suburban movement, like that's not going to be the way that we're going to go in the future. And then lastly... Um, Again, because of our post-industrial nature, uh, we are going to need to re-embrace the Holy Spirit. So uh, people who are following equations over and against the Holy Spirit, that's a tough way to start a church today. Uh, What does it look like in people's various contexts to follow the Holy Spirit, not just as individuals, and especially for point leaders in churches, not just as like set-apart individuals because like you had the vision or something. No, 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 no. Mm -hmm. This is a communal thing. How do we discern the Holy Spirit together in community for the purposes of the community that surrounds us? Yeah. So yeah, there you go. Post-colonial, post-industrial, highly pneumatological, I think would be a good start. There. Highly pneumatological. I love it. You know, and I've even heard, listening to some evangelical podcasts, uh, this point about like the whole, the, the model, so to speak, of plug and play, it doesn't work anymore. Um, and it's so contextual that folks need to recognize the contextuality of it and realize it's a, you know, like you said, it's not, you can't just plug in, plug it in and work everywhere. Um yeah. Something else I was going to ask you, and now I'm blanking on it. Um, oh, this is what I want to ask you about. He, he, you kind of criticize the, the launch, launch large model, and this kind of, I guess, feeds back into to the sustainability question. But, you know, I, I've been a person who's, like, banged on big churches, like, for as long as I've been doing this because I, I like 
I like community, and I think community is easier, easier to achieve in small small groups and small gatherings. But thinking about it from an economics standpoint, I think about economies of scale and how, and, and fair enough, this is bumping up against your post-industrial point. So, I mean, that's the question, again, going back into sustainability, like maybe talking a more practical level, like what does this mean like for the the funding do the pastors need to be volunteer do need to be home churches kind of that kind of thing uh so i'm not allergic to launch large models i'm allergic to launch large models as industrial protocol fair enough fair enough yeah uh, so that's a key I've, I've we've started many churches that are now multi-staff and thousands of people and uh thanks be to god that's amazing um but if you think that's that's what the church is and that's how everyone has to do it then we're going to come across a problem gotcha gotcha um so for those that have discerned that they want to launch large and the holy spirit has been guiding the community in that way way to go yeah i'm glad it's not me doing it but way to go uh we'll support you all the way um but people who there's lots of people who don't feel called to launch large churches yeah yeah Um, so how do we support them and back to your question how do we support them economically yeah the question uh, if you do need, let's just say you need you know, 150 committed adults right. to sustain a church as a full-time pastor. That's tough. Yeah, if you want to do it that way, you know, good on you. I wouldn't want to do it that way, <laughs> um, but that's what a lot of people want to do, so great. An increasing number of people um, certainly are embracing bivocationality, uh, not just for the purpose of keeping the finances low to create sustainability in the church, but because people will actually want to make money. So if you are a pastor who wants to actually make money and are considering thinking about moving bivocationally, then get a job that actually makes money. Mm-hmm. Have it tied into uh, your other vocation as a pastor as yeah, well, yeah. certainly. Um, but have do something that makes money. And uh, there, especially if you're living in cities, in big cities, and you need to pay rent that costs $3,000 a month. Yeah. You can't do that no. making $40,000 a year. No. Uh, you need a job that will make money so you can sustain yourself. So, yeah, all that comes to mind, bivocationality. And then, again, back to the whole creating products, creating experiences, mm-hmm. uh, creating content. However people are going to want to do it, um, they should do it. We don't have time to talk about this, but I think it almost deserves another podcast. Is The question about theological education is one that I repeatedly come back to about does the entire theological education model need to change because of all these things we've talked about? Yeah. That is a great question. (laughs) Let me ask you one more thing before we take a break. What advice I just, for, even if it's for myself, what advice do you, do you give, would you give pastors and church leaders right now? That's a great question. Uh, it requires the art of relationship. Again, I don't want to industrialize it, but certainly um, moving through and out of COVID is on everyone's mind. And I'll probably intersect that with like adaptive versus technical leadership. Hmm. Um, do an assessment on how you're doing. Obviously, the ratios of adaptive leadership has have gone up, especially for existing church pastors yeah. in the past year and a half. So how are you doing there? Are you loving this? Do you want to continue to steep yourself in that adaptive leadership? Or is it wearing you out? And yeah, I would measure that and then intersect that with a, a therapy appointment or a spiritual director talking to an expert like you, Lauren, about uh, what does that mean uh, for, for my life. Wow, Nick, thank you for that. Let's take a quick break and we'll come back with some closing questions. All right, we're back with Nick Warness. And Nick, 
these closing questions. You can take it seriously or not as you'd like to. If you're a pope for a day, you know, what does that look like? What do you want to do? Well, I'm a good Presbyterian after all, and I do believe in decentralized leadership. So this is an especially tough one for me. But if I was pope for a day, I think I would encourage people to stop emphasizing trying to grow your own thing bigger and instead emphasize being generative with the thing that you're leading. Yeah. It just goes so much further if, if we can replicate. It, it fits with natural systems of, of our globe and how things work. And we'll just get a lot further if we focus on generativity rather than trying to grow our own thing bigger. I love it. I would say, Nick, uh, I've had several people answer abolish the papacy. <laughs> that's a good one. I like that. that that's, I, I'm for that, too. <laughs> or just allow women to lead. That would be helpful. To start. <laughs> I'm a theologian or historical Christian figure you'd want to meet or bring back to life. You know who's really influential on me um, that I'm just remembering right now as I reflect on this question? That's Miroslav Volf. Okay. Uh, that book, Exclusion and Embrace, literally changed my life and has set a pathway toward just being maybe a little too obsessed uh, with reconciliation. Hmm. Um, probably talk to my therapist about that and <laughs> why that is. Um, but yeah, his work on exclusion and embrace uh, and developing a theology of reconciliation has really pointed me in the direction of for why I do I think all the things that I do well there's three books like I've got to check out uh let alone you know I mean Simon Sinek you know start with a why that's a his stuff is so good oh so good what do you think history will remember from our current time and place um I mean, there's low-hanging fruit, like a transition in the church uh, toward LGBT inclusivity, yeah, uh, which I think is, is obviously very important and to be celebrated. Uh, but the, the, the less low-hanging fruit answer, I think our obsession with uh, uh, ecclesial consumerism, hmm. uh, the, the way people make their choices on how they participate with church, like a dirty, capitalistic consumer. <laughs> so... Yeah, I'll, I'll say ecclesial consumerism for that one. You know, I was taking a marketing class uh, recently, and I was like, man, you know what? Some of these churches, like, they're not, like, better. They're just better marketers than me. Yeah, and, uh, I mean, whatever. That's another conversation. Uh, let me ask you this. I'm going off script here. Sure. Do you? I was talking about this with another pastor yesterday, and I think you mentioned LGBT. I, to me, I think, like, that's coming to evangelicalism like they just like the leaders who are fighting it that's it's going to sweep it and they just don't want to admit it yet sure like would you agree and i, I also think about soteriology like that's going to come yeah. and right. influence a change there too i sure hope so yeah i sure hope so i, I think uh, that bell curve for like innovators early adopters late adopters that whole thing uh, I think that bell curve probably does stand true. There's the uh, there's the innovators in this, mm -hmm. um, and then now we're we're moving past innovators to the early adopters, and yeah, fairly soon, uh, the whole thing will will turn over, and we can say thanks be to God at the end of it. Can't wait. Hmm. Well, this has been a great conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Um, where can people find out more about you and Cyclical? Uh, you can connect us connect to us Cyclical Inc. C Y C L I C A L inc.com uh i'm on whatever instagram facebook all those things tiktok apparently uh, 
TikTok, yeah, TikTok's a little different. What I do there, but uh, yeah, I'd, I'd be I'd be happy to connect with anyone who wants to talk about faithful innovation. And uh, we have a whole staff of people that are ready to join you and helping you create whatever you'd like to create. And we'd love to join you in that. Well, this has been such a great conversation. Thanks for your time, and uh, may God's peace be with you. Thanks, Lauren, and also with you. Thanks for joining us on the Future Christian Podcast. The Future Christian Podcast is produced by Torn Curtain Arts in partnership with Resonate Media. To learn more about Lauren or the podcast, visit futurechristian.com. If you've enjoyed the show and you think it would be valuable for others to hear, subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. That really helps more people find us. Thanks again and go in peace.